I just want to jump right in and I want you to look at verse number 17 and look at a, a little phrase that is packed with so much meaning. And it's right at the very beginning of verse number 17. He says, and if you call on him as father. Have you ever thought how astounding it is that we get to call the God of the universe, the God who created all things, we get to call him father. How blessed are we that we get to call him father? It's it's so tremendous. And what makes it more tremendous is when we think about what the Bible teaching says about our parents. And I'm not talking about our physical parents. I'm talking about our spiritual parents. Did you know that the Bible says that all of humanity have one of two spiritual parents? And I, it's so important to unpack this. I'm going to just run through some verses real quick. In his debate with the religious leaders in Jerusalem, Jesus looked at the religious leaders and he said, if you, if God were your father, you would love me. Now he's talking to, he's talking to the elite, the spiritual, the spiritual. And he said, if God were your father, you would love me. So if God is not their father, then who is their father? Well, two verses later in John eight forty four, he says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but the pastor, these are the people that put Jesus in the in the tomb, right? Put him on the cross, he died. Uh, that that's understandable that their father is the devil. But the Bible teaches that we have one of two fathers. And um, the way that we can tell who our father is is by our works. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so here, uh, John is teaching that if you have a sinful habit of life, that's the practice of your life, then your father is the devil. Now think about it for just a minute. Uh, we read in Romans that the Bible says no one does good, no, not one. No one's righteous before God. So none of our deeds are righteous. So that means that at birth, everybody has the devil as a father. Now, I bet you didn't come to church today expecting your pastor to tell you that, did you? But this is going to get really good, really encouraging in just a minute. I promise. Verse number 12, four verses later, he said, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. One more verse in interpreting the parable of the weeds. You remember the parable of the weeds, how the weeds and the, and the, the, the weeds and the wheat were together in the field. And the, the wheat was gathered and the weeds were gathered and the weeds were thrown into the fire. And Jesus in interpreting this parable said this, the field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And so since the fall, we are all born children of the devil and we all deserve eternal punishment. And God knew that. And, and God understood that. And yet God is a loving God, is he not? And there are three great needs that, that all of fallen humanity need, has. And they're laid out here. The first one is... 
we need a new legal status because right now we are condemned to die. We are judged and we are condemned to die, right? We need a new family because we are children of the devil. And we need a new life because we're dead in trespasses and sins. Those are the universal needs. Everybody needs that. God answered those needs. God's provision was justification. Through Jesus Christ, He declares us righteous when we believe in Him. Amen? We, we need a new family. And so the Bible says that He adopts us into His family. And we're called sons and daughters of God. And we need new life. And so He gives us sanctification. And our time here on earth is spent receiving more and more life. And the dead works uh, recede further and further back into uh, the, the past of our lives. And so He sanctifies us. He gives us new life. But I want to focus for just a minute on the, this term adoption. Adoption is so critical. Imagine with me for just a minute that you're born in a poor family and you get adopted by a king. I'll be honest with you. I know there's women here who like to watch the royal weddings and the royal family and all that sort of stuff. But you know what? I would hate to be born into the royal family. Because if you're born into the royal family, you got to act like the royal family. And at the Edgecombs house, we don't act like the royal family. Okay. But when we are adopted, what are you saying down there? <laughs> but the Bible teaches that at salvation, that we are adopted. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called or become children of God. In 1 John 3, 1 and 2, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. That's love, isn't it? We're adopted into a new family. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we will know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And so we have this eternal adoption. We are now called children of God. We're given all this life. And Peter is saying that um, if you call on Him as Father, he's implying that there are certain actions that we must have, certain attitudes that we must have, because God is in heaven. Now, one more little note. We're going to move on. And that is when he says, and we call Him as Father, he's not... He's not telling us, you know, we call God Father. What he's actually saying is we call on Him in prayer as Father. You see, Jesus said, Our Father, who which art in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Ultimately, He taught them to speak intimately with God. Our sonship is both present and future. We are God's sons and daughters now, but creation awaits the full realization of that. And we've only scratched the surface. I, I was telling Heather on the way over here, this concept of adoption and the implications of it are so exciting. I could preach a whole sermon just on adoption and what that means for us and, and how privileged we are to be adopted into the family of God. But I want you to understand this concept of adoption. I gave this as an introduction because this shades the whole rest of the passage in in 1 Peter 1, 17 to 21. Understanding the doctrine of adoption is important for our passage today. Peter, what is he doing? Think back with me, what we've studied so far. 
Peter is writing to some exiles who are being persecuted. They are being marginalized because they are Christians. And he tells them, look, you have this eternal salvation. You are have this eternal hope. You are going to heaven. And he, he's explaining how great the salvation is. Encourage them. And then he sticks this word in here that we saw last week. Therefore. And the therefore is very important because even though we are adopted, even though we have this great salvation, we learn that we have joy and we need to live a holy life. That's what we learned last week. Today, what we learned from Peter is that we need to fear the Father. We need to have a reverent fear. And so he's telling us, live out the time of your sojourn. Remember, we're sojourners here. In reverent fear of God because God is our Father. Now, that probably sounds really odd to you. Doesn't it sound odd to say, well, if God's our Father, we should fear Him? Well, let me, let me see if I can um, explain this a little bit, okay? When I was growing up, my, my dad was really into health foods. He was his whole life. And when I was growing up, we had two giant vegetable gardens. They were bigger when I was a kid than they were when I was an adult. One was at our house. One was at another location. And it was my my job and my brother's job to take care of that garden every summer. I felt like I spent my whole summer out in the garden. In reality, I probably didn't. But we hated vegetables. And he made us take care of the vegetable garden. I, for, I, all I wanted was for all those vegetables to wilt so I didn't have to eat any of them. But what my father would do is the night before he would go off to work, he would say, okay, boys, this is what I want you to do today. We literally had one garden the, the size of this auditorium that most of it was corn. And that's how big the gardens were. The other one was not quite that big. But he would, he would say, okay, this is what I want you to do. And most of the time it involved, what did it involve when you're working in the garden? Pulling weeds. Pull, he never would let us use a hoe. I didn't learn how to use a hoe until I was uh, like an adult. Because it's pulling the weeds, you get them out by the roots, and watering the garden. That's, that's It seemed like what we would do. And um, anyway, I remember so many times my dad coming home from work, and the first thing he would do when he'd get out of his truck is walk straight to that vegetable garden to see if we did our jobs. Anybody have that kind of experience? Okay. Did I mention I hated pulling weeds? Did I mention I hated vegetables? I did not hate pulling weeds as much as I hated correction. And so as much as I hated pulling weeds, I pulled those things as best I possibly could because I feared my dad. Now, my dad loved me. My dad my dad was awesome. When I was an adult, he a lot of times would take his vacation time, come to my house, and we would remodel the house. That I mean, he would give me the shirt off his back. Awesome dad. But I feared, I had a reverent fear of my father because of what he could do. Well, my brother hated pulling weeds too. But he hated pulling weeds more than he hated punishment. And so my brother, (laughs) my brother was a repeat lesson of what would happen if I didn't do a good job. (laughs) If you know what I mean. Do I need to explain that to anybody? 
I should have remembered this because one time, I don't know how old I was, maybe 11, something like that, 10. I, I read this series of books called The Great Brain. I don't know if anybody's ever read those books. But they're, they're kind of based on reality. A, a group of brothers growing up in Utah in the late 1800s. Awesome series of books for a 10, 11, 12-year-old boy. I read those, and this one boy, they called him the great brain. He was always thinking of ideas. I was reading the great brain, and my brain was turning. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to pay my brother to weed my half of the garden. Yeah, yeah, you know how that's going to go already. So that morning, now, the difference between my brother and I is when I had to weed the garden, I'd, I'd, as soon as breakfast was over, I would go weed the garden. And then I got to jump in the pool in the afternoon or whatever. My brother would get up and, and mess around and scratch and whatever else. And it would be after lunch in the heat of the day in the Midwest when he would go out and weed the garden. Well, that day, I mean, I was so happy. First thing I did was jump in the swimming pool even before he was out of bed because I wanted him to see me in the swimming pool while he was weeding my half of the garden. My dad came home that day. And he looked at the garden. I wasn't too concerned about it. And he, then all of a sudden I heard him say, Jared, come over here. And I went over there and he said, your half of the garden, I didn't pay attention to my brother and that was a problem. He said, your half of the garden was not weeded. You disobeyed me. You deserve a spanking. And I looked at him and I said, well, you, you really can't punish me because I paid Aaron to weed my half of the garden. Guess what he said? You already know, if you're a parent, you already know. He said it was your responsibility to make sure those weeds were out of there, and so you're getting the spanking, right? And so my dad was loving. My dad was, was a great dad, but I had that reverent fear of my father of disobeying and disappointing my father, much like many of you did. And that's the idea uh, behind what Peter is teaching, that God loves us so much that he adopted us, and therefore we should have a reverent fear of him. There's a second reason that we should have a reverent fear of God, and that is because he is an impartial judge of each person's work. Look at the verse one more time. He says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Just because we're adopted into God's family doesn't mean it gives us license to live as we wish. Why? Because God is morally impartial. This is very important for us to understand. The special privilege of calling God Father does not excuse us from being judged by God because every person will be judged according to the same standard. Um, The pagan life that God abhors will be no less abhorred when it's lived by people who profess to be Christians. The Christian who has been born again of the Father must, in fact, live as a child of good God. Now look, we're adopted. And because we're adopted, that means that we should have new works. We're to act like we're in a new family. Remember, talking about the new family business. We shouldn't live in fear of offending, disappointing, or um, misrepresenting Our Heavenly Father, we should live in fear of that. And it's comforting to know that He's an impartial judge, isn't it? Now, I need to explain a couple concepts here because this is very important. When you read this and it says we should fear God, there are some people that read this and think He's talking about eternal judgment. Like we're going to go to the judgment seat. 
How many of you ever heard those sermons about you're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ and all the bad thoughts that you ever had are going to be on a giant screen and everything bad? You've heard that. Okay, that's not true. That's not what Peter is talking about here because when we get to heaven, the judgment seat of Christ is a judgment of reward. What he is speaking of is right here on earth. If we sin against God, if we resist his calling, then he will begin the corrective measures to get us to become like him. You see? It, it's correction. And, and so that, that's one thing. The second thing is that he's impartial. He is completely impartial. Now, if you're a parent, you, you heard this. We heard this growing up. Well, you are really, you're really easy on her because she's a girl. And she would say, well, you're really easy on him, and, and you favor him because he's the... I saw some kids shaking their heads at their parents already. Um, you're real easy on him because he's the youngest. And then, and then my oldest would say, you're way easier on the two of them. I got way more spankings, and he's probably right he did. That's because he acted most like his father, I think. But we won't go there right now. But the reverent fear of God's impartial judgment of sin is a comfort to us. And it's also a motivation for us to live holy lives. Knowing that God, get this concept, this is so astounding. He adopted his enemies. He adopted his enemies into his family. That should be enough motivation for us to live holy lives. The truth that he um, is completely giving the punishment to his son to take should be a comfort to us and should be enough for us to live holy lives. But the fact of the matter is, it's not, is it? Do you? How many got saved and didn't sin since you've been saved? Right, we understand those truths, but it's not enough. And so what God does in his graciousness is when we begin to stray, he corrects us to get us right back on course. Now, American Christianity, I want to speak to American Christianity. This is um, important is so shallow in this understanding. Because what American Christianity says is, oh, it's okay, we're all under grace. It's all about grace. I'm forgiven, it's no big deal. If I sin, God's going to forgive me. That is that is American Christianity, their shallowness of their understanding in a nutshell. And that's a misunderstanding because the call of the Christian to live in grace is a call to holy living. There's, there's a common misunderstanding. And, and there's another common misunderstanding, and that is that anytime you call a Christian to live a holy life, you're a legalist. That's not true either. Because the Bible constantly calls us to live a holy life, to live a life that separates a life unto God. And so we're not being legalists. We're trying to act like we're in a new family. One more thing, genuine faith always manifests itself in works. Take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. I want to show you this. Colossians 3, verse number 23. Paul said that there's two kinds of people in the world. I want to show you how he characterizes these two kinds of people. Colossians 3.23. There are those who live their whole life to worship God. He says this, he says, In whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
You are serving the Lord Christ. And so the one kind of person is the kind of person who lives their whole life oriented towards God, oriented towards serving God and pleasing Him. And then he goes on, look at the next verse, uh, the next phrase, and he talks about the other kind of person. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. So God is not partial. If the tone of your life is to live in wrongdoing, is to live a life that does not please God, to live any way you want with no regard for God, then there is punishment due to that person, and there's no partiality at all with God. And these works, by the way, are not what get us to heaven. The works are the fruit that we can look at to see whether or not a person's going to heaven, right? That's what the Bible teaches. Let me give you a third thing. We're to live out our sojourn in reverent fear of God because He's our Father, because He's an impartial judge, and because we were redeemed from evil ways. Look at verse number 18 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Knowing that you were ransomed from futile ways, inherited from your forefathers. Now, just stop right there. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. That's, that's the redemption. Not with perishable things such as silver and gold. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And with the precious blood of Christ of a lamb without spot or blemish. One drop, one drop of Christ's blood is infinitely more valuable than all the gold in Fort Knox. One drop of Christ's blood is infinitely more valuable than all the diamonds in South Africa. One drop of Christ's blood is more valuable than all the stocks being traded on Wall Street. God's, Jesus' blood is infinitely precious. And it's the same blood that redeemed you from futile ways, from futile life, from, from foolish lifestyle, from a sinful lifestyle. The blood of Christ, the most infinitely valuable substance in all the world, redeemed you from sinful lifestyle into a lifestyle of holy living and righteousness. So, so follow the logic. Christ redeemed us from nothing other than the evil of our former way of life. And how did He do that? By giving His own life. He redeemed us from the evil way of our former life. Therefore, to continue to live in one's formal lifestyle is to deny the blood of Jesus Christ. Make sense? That's the logic. We are redeemed from the goals and the desires and the values of this material world, of the humanistic system, Everything that this world holds important is not important to God. God doesn't care how much is in your 401k. God doesn't care how you're doing on your job. I mean, He does. Don't get me wrong. But in ultimate sense, these things pale in importance compared to the eternal riches that we receive in Christ Jesus. Compared to the fact that God's whole goal for your life is to make you like Jesus Christ. And that is more important to Him than your your comfort and your security and even, to a degree, your happiness. Now, do you notice a word in there? He said you are ransomed. You see that word ransom? What do you think of when you think of ransom? You think of hostage, right? Pay the ransom. There's been movies about that. I think Mel Gibson was in one or two, and I don't know who else. But, but ransom, and it sounds like a hostage situation, but 
this, the word translated ransom, a lot of times is translated redeemed, and it's the concept of manumission. How many use that word this week? Manumission. And what it means is to release somebody from slavery. So think about it. What Peter said is that we were released from slavery to what? What were, what were we enslaved to? Sin. We were released by the blood of Jesus Christ. We were released from slavery to sin. Now, this word is very interesting. Let me. How do you get released as a slave in the Roman world? Fascinating the way it happens. This, this is neat. If a slave wants his freedom, a slave sometimes could buy their freedom. And so they would save their money, save their money, save their money. And they would get enough money to buy their way to freedom. But they didn't hand the owner the money. You know what they did? They went to the local pagan temple. And they gave the money to the pagan temple. And whatever idol or god happened to be in that particular Diana or whoever else it was, the temple, of course, would always take their cut and then give the money to the owner of the slave, what was left. And here's the idea. You ready? That slave went from being a slave of their owner to a slave of the God in the temple. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you find that anywhere in the Bible? You do. If you want to see it, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want to show you what Moses does because this is a picture of salvation. This is so important that we understand the Bible big picture concept here. Deuteronomy 7. Moses is rehearsing the works of God. Now, Deuteronomy 7, they're, they're poised to go into the promised land. They've ser- served their 40 years. They're on the other side of the Jordan River. Moses is given a series of sermons and he's recapping everything that happened. Deuteronomy 7, verse number 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out of out with a mighty hand and what? What's the word? Redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he goes on in Deuteronomy 26 times. He tells him, that you are no longer a slave to Pharaoh, you're a slave to me. You're going to serve me for the rest of your life. They were redeemed from the house of slavery in Egypt, and now they are redeemed to serve forever the God of the universe. That's a picture of our salvation, isn't it? We are slaves to sin, the Bible tells us. And now we can serve God. If you think deeply about Um, your redemption, and seriously consider how to serve God with your life, then you are way ahead of most of American Christianity, aren't you? Because like I said a while ago, most of American Christianity, hey, I'm under grace. It's no big deal. I sin. God will forgive. You know, I sin tonight. Tomorrow morning I'll wake up and say, dear Jesus, please forgive me. Um, 1 John 1, 9, he's going to forgive me, and I'll go on. Next week, I'll do the same sin. I'll do the same thing over and over. And the vast majority of American Christianity thinks of grace that way. And if you say, look, you need to live a holy life, they'll look at you and say, you legalist. But, but Paul, who thought deeply about grace, had a very different opinion. 
If you want to read this, turn to Titus 2. I want to show you how Paul characterizes grace and how deeply he thought through grace and see if it matches what you commonly hear in American Christianity at all. Colossians 2. By the way, when people say I'm not under the law, but I'm under grace, they're absolutely right. Because Paul said this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's American Christianity. That's as far as they go. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Amen. Praise the Lord. We're all under grace. We're not under the law. We can live. And if we sin, so what? Except that Paul continues. And what does he say? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for who? Our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from what? Here's that word redemption again. Redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. There's that slavery idea. And people who are zealous for good works. And so Paul understood very correctly that the grace of God appeared He brings salvation, but that's not the end of it. We don't kick our feet back, watch the NFL on Sunday, and say, I can stay home and live any way I want as long as I think about God every now and then. That's not it at all. We don't throw away all rules, but rather we give serious thought to how we are going to live in this present world. How our goals and desires are different from the the ones of the world. And, And... We are to look at our lives and ask and examine and say, God, is there any kind of lawlessness in me? Is there any kind of sin in my life that I need to to repent of? And praise be to God that He adopted us as sons and daughters. Amen? Praise be to God that our redemption from sin was paid for by the most infinitely valuable blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And in turn, for what He's done, we are to live our Christian lives in reverent fear of God. Why? Because God is our Father, first of all. Because He impartially judges sin, secondly. Third, He redeemed us for good works. And number four, and this is the best part, ready? Because fearing God results in hope. This is tremendous. I'm running long here. I'm going to have to cut it down here. Let me see if I can just kind of summarize this. Read verses 20 and 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your hope and your faith are in God. This is so rich. And I wish I had more time, but I gotta, I gotta move. But just let me say, God purposed in eternity past before the foundation of the world, to send Christ to redeem you individually. Every single one of you. He he ordained in eternity past that Christ's redemption would pay for your... His blood would pay for your redemption from your futile away. He suffered and died and rose again and is now glorified in heaven. And that, dear people, is the pattern. We here on earth will suffer. We suffer from physical ailments. We suffer from poor relationships. 
we, we suffer from uh, uh, crushed expectations and all these different things that we suffer for, from. And sometimes we suffer for Jesus Christ. Yet, the Bible says that one day we will be with Him in glorious perfection in heaven. And that is our blessed hope. And our faith and hope is in God because God raised Him from the dead and seated Him in glory on high. And the Bible very specifically says that He will raise us up and glorify Him with Christ. Now, I do believe that the amount of glory that you have in heaven is directly proportionate to how you obeyed Him here on earth. That's tremendous, too, to think about. I always figure I'll be somewhere back in the slums of heaven. I don't know how you are about that. Me, me and happy. <laughs> I'm joking. But, uh, uh, but seriously, the, the more you serve Him now in heaven, you'll receive more and more glory because of the way that you served Him, for the way that you obeyed Him. And it's just a tremendous truth. Let me give you three applications real quick. Three applications. Number one. What does that mean for us? Give greater thought to the consequences than to the immediate pleasures of sin. Give greater thought to the consequences. The world doesn't mention the disastrous consequences of feeding your greed by neglecting your family, does it? It doesn't doesn't mention the disastrous consequences of broken marriages as a result of broken vows. And it doesn't show you the eternal price to be paid in hell for a lifestyle in rebellion against God. Number two, start each day renewing your sense of reverence for God. Start each day by spending time with the one who redeemed you from your futile way of life. Ask the Lord that you'll fear Him more than you will fear men. That you'll fear Him more than you'll enjoy the pleasures of sin. Remind yourself that you are to fear Him daily. Number three, throughout the day, focus on Christ. For that strengthens your sanctification and renews your hope. Temptation comes every day, multiple times a day. But to remember the price of your redemption helps you to remember the sinfulness of sin. It helps you to remember that Christ loves you and that He's in heaven. He's the first fruits of all who will go and rise and have true riches in heaven. And that gives us hope that is eternal and unfading. I could go on and on with applications. There are so many things that we can learn from our adoption and from our redemption, two great doctrines. When I was thinking about the hope, I, I was just overwhelmed uh, earlier this week when I was thinking about the hope that we have of eternal life. And I was thinking about this hymn, The Solid Rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, the holy lean on Jesus' name. Isn't that true? Everyone here in this auditorium who knows Jesus, that's the cry of your heart. When darkness veils His lovely face, and some of you right now might be in darkness. It might be because of chronic health. It might be because of family issues. It might be something that nobody else knows. But when darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. His grace is unchanging. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. He's our anchor. He's our hope. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. Listen to this. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. He's our solid rock. One more verse. 
When he shall come with trumpet sound, I cannot wait for that day. I absolutely cannot wait. Oh, may I then in him be found. How? Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking stand. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here when he says that our faith and our hope is in God. Dear Christian, where are you today? Maybe you're struggling with a sinful temptation and you're not fearing God the way that you should. You're, 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 you took on this false notion of, well, well everybody's in the grace. You need to count the cost of sin daily. But you might be here and you might be going through some difficult, deep water. And it just seems like everywhere you turn is darkness. Can I tell you, dear believer who's suffering right now, Christ is your solid rock, your hope. And nothing else is worthwhile. It's all sinking sand. Anchor your life on Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for Peter, the encouragement that he gave to these believers who are suffering, who um, life is not going well for them. But Lord, I pray that each day we will reverence Jesus Christ by seriously thinking about how to please God, how to, uh, uh, to remain um, steadfast in our righteousness before God. And for those, Lord, who are suffering, having difficult trials, every day they wake up, they're tired because they know what's ahead of them. I pray that Jesus will, will anchor them and give them the hope that they need to live joyfully even in dark circumstances. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.